science and technology are often spoken of in the same breath, but they're actually very different disciplines.、Um, science is a way of knowing, a particular way of thinking and understanding the universe.、Uh, technology, on the other hand, is a practice. It's a thing that people just do.、Um, you can certainly have technology. Without science,、um, or you can even have technology that is premised on pseudoscience. It doesn't really matter. The only thing about technology is, does it actually work?、Um, and engineers, the way they think, it's it's very different from how scientists think. And so, even though we sort of conflate the two in a lot of contexts, and we call science fiction science fiction, if you actually examine science fiction.、Um, A great deal of science fiction, or what's classified science fiction, are really、uh, technology fiction. They are stories about、um, the way humans express themselves and develop who they are and tell their own story through the medium of technology.、Um, and so, I think, in a lot of ways, techfi would be a more accurate、um, genre term for. Certainly, for what I do, and also for what a lot of other sci-fi writers do,、um, we are much more concerned about technology and and how it relates to humanity. What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 86 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, the Chewie to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, MJ Kuhn. How's it going, MJ? Hello, I am doing lovely. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. And if you want to support that lovely human being, you can pick up her books, Among Thieves, and its sequel, Thickest Thieves. If you want a complete duology. Full of raucous adventure and pirates and swords and fighting and death and all kinds of lovely <laughs> stuff like that. You're gonna love Among Thieves. There's also death heists, and like, all kinds of lovely、yeah. stuff. <laughs> What、I'm、a great juxtaposition my, that was. <laughs> that. And how many heists are there in those books? Like thirty? I don't know.、It's、like a half a dozen at least. Yeah, between the two of them. Great time. <laughs> yeah.、Um, so yeah, go support MJ and her work.、Uh, as well, you can also、uh, check out. Some stuff about my debut novel, Mushroom Blues. So on January seventeenth, we're going to be doing a cover reveal. I'm going to be at TBRCon 2024, and then all throughout February and March, I'm going to be bombarding your ears and annoying the hell out of you with a bunch of promotional material. Also, you can、uh, check us out on Patreon and the merch store. So check the links in the description to support what we do here. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And subscribe to the Fanfighter YouTube channel, where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. And now, joining us once again is the wonderful Ken Liu, author of the Dandelion Dynasty series, the Paper Menagerie short story collection, and more, including this lovely boy right here, the Grace of Kings. How are you today, Ken? Hi, Adrian and MJ. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, thanks for being here again. And heads up, this is part two of our two-part chat with Ken. So I recommend checking out part one to get to know him better. Today, though, we're getting technical, talking about technology fiction and exploring the concept of technology as story. So, to start off this this masterclass,、uh, you mentioned to us in our initial emails your idea of the genre of sci-fi being a misnomer. That most sci-fi is actually tech-fi stories that center around the role of technology. So, can you elaborate upon this? Yeah, I can.、Um, so, science and technology are often spoken of in the same breath, but they're actually very different disciplines.、Um, science is a way of knowing, a particular way of thinking and understanding the universe.、Uh, technology, on the other hand, is a practice. It's a thing that people just do.、Um, you can certainly have technology. Without science,、um, or you can even have technology that is premised on pseudoscience. It doesn't really matter. The only thing about technology is, does it actually work?、Um, and engineers, the way they think, it's it's very different from how scientists think. And so, even though we sort of conflate the two in a lot of contexts, and we call science fiction science fiction, if you actually examine science fiction.、Um, 
a great deal of science fiction or what's classified as science fiction are really uh, technology fiction. They are stories about um, the way humans express themselves and develop who they are and tell their own story through the medium of technology. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, tech-fi would be a more accurate um, genre term for certainly for what I do and also for what a lot of other sci-fi writers do. Um, we are much more concerned about technology and, and how it relates to humanity uh, as opposed to science per se. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And it's like tech-fi just sounds way more cool. Sci-fi kind of feels burnt <laughs> out at this point. I'm tired. Whatever. Let's get some tech-fi in here. Or tech-punk. Like, yeah, tech bring punk. in the punk a little bit more. <laughs> I feel like uh, I could benefit from an example to really drive it home, though. Do you have any examples of books that you feel like really exemplify TechFi to kind of? Uh, well, you know? um, uh, I, I suppose I can. Um, so uh, let's see. So an example, uh, obviously, um, we we can think of um, uh, what would be a good example. A good example would be something where. Um, the science is not particularly believable, plausible, or even central. Uh, so for us now, looking back on a lot of classical sci-fi, they're really tech-fi. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the the great example of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, that's an example of tech-fi. It's not so much the science that was interesting. It's the idea of the practice of crafting things out of electricity. I mean, electricity might as well be magic for all the scientific plausibility behind any of that um but the idea of animating and crafting life out of non-life that is inherently interesting to people um another example would be uh i mean this is a little bit of uh focusing on my own thing but a lot of steampunk uh, and a lot of other dash punk genres are really tech-fi. They're not particularly uh, interested in the science of it. It's more about the pleasure of working with the technology, of working out how the crafting of elaboration of the technology vocabulary of chrome and, and, and leather and steam and goggles and all that stuff, how that helps a society express itself. Um, so, um, so that's an example. And of course, you know, my own epic fantasy, uh, the Dungeon Dynasty, even though it's styled as epic fantasy, fundamentally, it's much more concerned with the evolution of technology and how technology in all its different manifestations, including the software and the hardware, um, meaning machines as well as uh, social codes, uh, change uh, the way society the the evolution of the society and and change the fate of millions of people uh it's it's really fundamentally a story about technology yeah well building on that i mean as you say like technology fiction doesn't even have to be analogous to sci-fi you know there are ways in which technology fiction can be uh fit into fantasy molds into secondary worlds and all that kind of stuff so what are do you want to elaborate on on that a little bit and and kind of explain how not just in your work but how fantasy worlds and secondary worlds can approach technology fiction? Yeah. So the way I think about this is um you want to go back to first principles, right? Which is let's let's think about what is technology, right? So technology if you dig into the roots um they come from you know technology the word comes from two greek roots techni and logia and techni is skill it's a particular kind of knowledge it's skill it's craft um it's the it's the same root behind text uh, which literally means weaving right so so weaving is our oldest craft and techni is and textiles the, right exactly it's the style it's the it's the knowledge and skill behind craft. Um, logia, you know, means uh, discourse, but the root of that is gathering. Um, so logs are things you gather, and to collect is to gather things. Um, and 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 um, a speech is literally a gathering of words, right? So discourse is a gathering of words. So 
technology is a discourse about skill, if you will, uh, which I find to be very evocative of what it is we're actually doing. Um, I think there's been a very long, long tradition in uh, certainly in the Western tradition, but it's not limited to the Western tradition. A lot of philosophical traditions have long posited a kind of opposition between humanity and technology. The idea is that somehow the more technology we rely on, the less human we become. Uh, I mean, you can see a very early manifestation of this in Plato's dialogues, where he rails against a technology that corrupts the minds of the youth. Uh, so he talks about how this technology makes young people think that they know something when they don't. Uh, it makes young people forget things. It makes young people not realize that the only way to actually know something is to discourse, to debate, to argue, to engage in critical thinking. And Instead, um, this new technology tells them to just rely on what's already being done, to repeat what has happened before, to basically reproduce what has already been um, done by some other mind. Now, you might think I'm talking about ChatGPT. That is not <laughs> what Plato was talking about. Plato was talking about writing. The technology he was railing against right. was writing. So... There's this long, long tradition in Western thinking that says the more we become reliant on technology, even it's if it's something like writing, the less human we become and the less we we have agency. Now, I think this is a very flawed point of view. Um, I mean, I would say that you know if you told people go study beavers, but ignore the dams they build, do not look at dams <laughs> or Go study bees, but do not pay any attention to their hives. Um, Just eat their honey and fuck off. Don't worry about it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But uh, we would obviously think that's not the right approach. You can't – I mean, obviously, the the dams and the beehives and the termite mounds are manifestations of the essence of these creatures, that they externalize their – genetics and their mental processes such as they are in some way in these physical things. Well, humans are no different. I mean, in fact, humans are even more so. I mean, how can you possibly understand human nature without understanding human craft? We are so woven, interwoven, textile, we're woven into our technology that it is not possible to think, to speak of humanity or human nature without reference to our craft. The two are really the same. Um, you know, language is one of our oldest technologies, and, and we can't even think in some sense without language. So to say that, you know, you can sort of take apart human nature from human craft, it's nonsense, really. Um, and I would argue that that's what makes TechFi so interesting. A, a lot of so-called realist literature still deals with technology as, you know, a kind of, with a sort of disdain. That is, the characters are characters and and all the superficial technology around them is just, you know, distractions. We, we to understand um, human nature, we need to pare away all the trappings of technology and focus on characters as they are. You know, a lot of realism is about that. It's, it's about focused on characters per se. But I think they have it backwards. Um, in some ways, I would argue TechFi is the most realist mode of, you know, of fiction. It's more realist than so-called realism because TechFi, by placing so much focus on technology, on human craft, delves deeper into human nature because it encompasses more. Rather than just focusing on the on the flesh and 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 you know the 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 parts that's not externalized in the form of artifacts and institutions techfi tries to focus on all of that and it gives a more comprehensive picture of what humanity actually is because you can't understand us without this um, and i would argue that you know technology properly understood encompasses all the modes in which we externalize our minds um, technology in my definition, is any craft, any skill that represents a externalization of the human mind. So in, in that conception, um, a map is a form of technology because it's literally an ordering of the physical universe into our minds and also a projection of our mental patterns 
onto the universe. A clock is also a technology, obviously, because it, it measures time. It sort of gives name to time, and it externalizes our mental conceptions into the universe. Same thing with custom. Same thing with religion. Um, and I mean, even even so, things as like as as seemingly basic as when we look at the the broad trajectory of of human development and the development of the human brain as we came from apes and advanced into more human-like forms, fire, hunting, uh, and the development of societies centered around things like agriculture, which is why I think it's so perfectly analogous to something like fantasy, where people don't always think about the technology in fantasy worlds. But technology, like you you were using the references, uh, the analogies to bees and to beavers and ants, these different things, those technologies don't seem like technologies because they're seemingly part of the natural order of that particular species. But when it comes to human, what's natural to our species? Well, it's socialization, it's language, it's, uh, you know, societal development over things like agriculture and and Mm -hmm. cities and towns and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, it goes all the way back to super basic things like, like I think a, a, a technology as simple as uh, a spear, a wooden stick sharpened into a spear being used for hunting. I think I talked to Tade Thompson about this. That in and of itself is a tool that is an extension of the human mind and it is a technology mm-hmm. that is being used for a purpose that it was not originally intended for, which is to be a branch on a tree. So I think it's like mm-hmm. it goes into such deep levels that people don't really think like how technological fantasy can be, but also how technological right. human history can be. Right. And, and, and you know, you might ask the question, OK, so what? You know, how does that help us write more interesting fiction? You know, even if we accept that technology is part of human nature, what does that mean? Well, there's a bunch of implications of that that I think are very interesting. Right. One is the idea that technology not being external to human nature is part of human nature and therefore you can see how technology is not static, but rather it's a process. Like any discourse, it's a it's a it's a dialogue, and it keeps on evolving. So, in the same way that you know, it's not that humans invent technology. Technology also invents humans, right? So, a good example of this is uh, you know what Winston Churchill said. So, after World War II. So, uh, as you know, the House of Commons was destroyed during World War II, and so it had to be rebuilt. And there was a lot of debate over how the House of Commons would be rebuilt. And Churchill was one of those who advocated that the House of Commons be rebuilt exactly the way it was. Um, So, you know, if you've seen uh, the prime minister, you know, talks to MPs, segments, then you'll see that it's it's this long rectangular chamber um, with the opposition on one side and the majority on the other. Um, and Churchill said, that's that's the point, right? We built our houses, but then the houses built us. His argument was that the two-party system of British democracy was essentially produced by the shape of the House of Commons. Because the shape of Commons was rectangular and had one side versus the other, it naturally produced, promoted conflict and the two-party system. You can't separate the two. They built the house, and then the house built British democracy. But on now, top of I that, think, not only did it produce conflict, but it produced debate. Yes, and I think debate, debate, exactly. Debate is the key. You could, you could face each other and debate. So uh, now I think this argument is perhaps, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that this particular argument is all that strong, because there's a, there's a, there's a kind of determinism to it that I'm not entirely buying. <laughs> but the idea that you shape your houses and that houses then shape you is very important. We do discourse in technology and the technology then talk back to us and shape who we are. Um, I think that's incredibly important, um, not just for you know science fiction, but if you're writing fantasy, if you're writing any kind of fiction, really, when you're talking about the, 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 the nature of institutions and, and, and artifacts, all of them shape the people and they also express, and this is the second part, they express the values of those who built them as well, right? This is the most important thing, I think, which is 
technology is not some sort of neutral thing that you find. Every piece of technology, in some ways, is a piece of discourse by people, by some people to other people, or they they are contested grounds of speech between different groups. So every time you're looking at an artifact or a law or an institution or any kind of technology, broadly said, it is expressing values. The very existence of that technology expresses the values of the inventors and also those who who promoted it and also those who kept it and maintained it. But it also speaks for those who were opposed to it, those who hacked it, those who tried everything they could to destroy it. The, the, The very shape of a piece of technology, the very shape of a highway, for example, or the very shape of a city represents all of the individuals who did everything they could to speak and express their values in the shape of those things. Why is Los Angeles shaped the way it is? Well, it is the result of a series of decisions about cars. I mean, you go look at Los Angeles history and and, and, and read about how um, the various laws about the number of parking spaces that must be reserved for each unit of housing. It just keeps on going up and up, you know, from 0.1 to 1 to 2 to 2.5. I mean, no wonder Los Angeles developed into this thing where you have islands of buildings surrounded by oceans of parking lots. That's that's, this is this expresses <laughs> a certain kind river, of value. Rivers of freeways and all kinds of I was just saying, ridiculous, yeah. infamous for being one of the worst oh, cities to drive in in the country. But, but, <laughs> yeah, but Ken, you, I immediately I thought of cars when you were bringing up this this um, this notion of expression. Um, how you could look at certain eras of car manufacturing, and you look at. American car manufacturing versus, say, Japanese car manufacturing. You look at companies like Toyota or Hyundai or or what have you, and then you go to the States, let's say like in the 70s or eight, uh, in the 80s, especially when Japanese car manufacturing blew up, the the design and like the, the functionality of the cars is completely representative of the societies that they come from. The Absolutely. American design is bigger. It's, bra- it's, it's brash. It's like the muscle car mentality that came from the United States is all about that like American uh, sort of bravado and that patriotism. (laughs) And then you look at Japanese cars, which are much more um, sort of uh, function, much more based in like functionality and, and, and use value and stuff like that, as opposed to sheer uh, aesthetics for the purpose of expressing this certain sort of uh, mentality. It's, so fascinating. Absolutely. And and then you look at cities that are not built with those values in mind. You look at these very old European cities um, that have no room for cars, really. They were not built for cars. They were built for humans to walk around. And, and you look at the, how dense they are and how they're shaped, how they invite other species even to move in and live among humans with spaces for doves, with spaces for bats. It's it's interesting to sort of think about what are the values expressed by a style of construction like this versus a style of construction like that. In one particular shape of, of towns and cities, you can see that the idea is that humans are supposed to live within a web of communities that where they work and where they live and where they worship are all put together into the same space versus a very different kind of construction, say Los Angeles, where it is clearly envisioned that where you work and where you live are entirely different places. And that the idea that you would have all of them within the same space is anathema, that you would just live a point-to-point existence where you're enclosed within tiny bubbles. Um, in fact, this vision is expressed even by, you know, visions of the future. Uh, there's a whole series of very um, prominent uh, uh, cartoons, I guess I would call them, called Closer Than We Think, uh, which was published during the age of the Jetsons and NASA's heyday, which offered, uh, these were newspaper uh, comics intended to give viewers in America a taste of the future and to sort of see where they were going. And one of the most striking images I remember from these series of, of, of uh, comics is this idea of houses of the future. And it sort of portrays these suburban houses being placed next to each other, each of them enclosed within a glass bubble. 
such that they could be completely safe from the weather and you could just do whatever you wanted enclosed within this glass bubble. I think it's actually, you know, sort of a very potent image um, that this is how we imagine American suburban life, that you would be living yeah. within a little bubble, mm-hmm. not in a community, but in a bubble. That yeah. individualism. Which is really amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, uh, it kind of came to fruition, but just more in like a, in like a mental and a psychological yeah, sense. More of a, <laughs> of a technological, uh, what echo chamber situation. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, you, you, could say, <laughs> you could say that Bowling for Columbine was presaged by that vision. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is what they had in mind. Um, I, I, I find that this view of technology be really interesting because now if you're, you know, whether you're writing, um, science fiction, fantasy, historical fiction, or even just realist fiction, you can now examine and think about each piece of technology you put into your fiction and what values it's expressing, right? I I think the idea of thinking of technology as bits of speech, as utterances from the inventors, from the hackers, from the salespeople, from the marketing people, from uh, critics, from rebels, I think it changes the way you think about the world. The setting is no longer passive, but depositions of utterances from other people. We live among the values of all those who come before us, their manifestation. We literally walk among the externalization of the minds of other people. I mean, every time I hold up a phone or drink from a mug, I'm I'm literally interacting with bits of the externalization of other people's minds. That is a very powerful idea, and it really changes the way we think about, you know, the way we live as well as the kind of stories we're trying to tell. Yeah, because it's like on one hand, we are using technology to communicate more effectively, even if it's our values and our ideas and and the ways we want to express ourselves through the physicality of something. Um, And sometimes it's not even physical, like you were saying, like the distinction between hardware and software. And on the other hand, there's ways in which we can communicate about technology more effectively. And then on top of that, since technology and humanity are so intertwined, I love this notion that you bring up of like technology as story, technology as our epic poem and how interwoven we are in the textile in the, in the, in like the textile tapestry of, of human history. How can we view technology as both a story in and of itself and as a tool for understanding our st- ourselves and the stories that we tell ourselves. One hundred percent. I mean, it's 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 both and, and 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 everything, right? I mean, think about what are the institutions we choose to keep. Um, the limited liability corporation is an incredibly important piece of technology. Um, you know, without it, uh, it, it could be argued that much of the European exploration and settlement of the New World would not have been possible. The, the limited liability corporation was what allowed a pooling of resources beyond the clan and the family and, and, and to create the kind of conditions possible to engage in these massive endeavors. Um, and the fact that the corporation now persists and we keep on taking this institution and endowing it with more rights and more obligations and more sort of separate uh, personhood is also deeply interesting. We take this institution, this this fiction, and we keep on giving it all these attributes of personhood. Why do we do this? What are the values are we expressing by doing this? What does it mean to say that a corporation has free speech rights? This would have been incomprehensible, I would argue, to many of our founding um, founding fathers. Uh, but we now accept it as, as, as a thing that is true. How did we end up evolving the technology in this direction and, and say that this is okay? I mean, if you think about it, um, this is rather bizarre. I mean, this is the real world we live in. But if you invented a fantasy world in which you know, people go around and say these imaginary things have rights and they are, they are very important. <laughs> they speak, they do things. They have, they are, they have morals. We would have been like, what kind of bad world building is this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think, I think, uh, I think Ecuador was one of the first countries in the world to give its like corporations its nat- free speech. No, no, no oh. to give its, its, its nature, um, oh. sort of like yes. human rights. 
Yes. You know, yeah. so it's kind of like, it's like the personification and the, the ways in which we anthropomorphize, you know, non-physical yeah. things, non-tangible things, honestly. like concepts, the way that we, mm-hmm. that we anthropomorphize corporations and governments and all these different things and the power mm-hmm. that we endow them or the power mm-hmm. that we take away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a strange, it's a strange implementation of the human imagination. But it's an interesting technology, right? So yeah, if you can yeah, imagine yeah. that courts can appoint spokespersons for a forest, for a sea, for a cove, for a river, or so on, how would that change the way we conceive of environmental litigation? How would that change mm-hmm. the way we think yeah. about balancing of interest? Like taking the commons and say, rather than just making them into property, what if we give them a voice? Even if it's an imaginary one, so what? We've, we've accepted much grander fictions like money mm-hmm. or, you know, human rights for corporations. <laughs> right, so, or time, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't know why that's any more implausible. Um, but, yeah, you know, that's that's like one of those interesting speculative things that we can imagine uh, the, as a transformation for the societies that we live in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to build on that with the, you know, the transformation of not only, you know, the inception of a technology, but how it grows and changes with our society. I want to talk a little bit about today's, uh, you know, technology and the conversations around it um, specifically. And I feel like we've kind of touched on this even in part one of our chat with you when we were talking about Frankenstein a little bit, um, where it's, you know, there's fear and fear mongering about technology. And um, so, you know, what are your kind of current feelings about the current technologies and how they're impacting things? And you know, how can authors, should authors uh, be using storytelling to counteract or, you know, kind of interact with that fear? Yeah, I mean, you know, relevant to all of us, I think one of the pieces of technology that has suddenly shot into prominence and become sort of the thing for everybody to think about right now is the notion of AI, right? Um, yeah. I mean, some people don't like the name even, they they they, they don't want to call it intelligence because it's not intelligence i I don't i'm not dogmatic yeah but degrees of intelligence is such a confusing thing i know i'm not i'm not dogmatic about this i'm just going to call it ai and (laughs) people will know what i'm talking about but i do think that the way we think about ai is very interesting because not only our technology themselves utterances that express values but even the way we talk about technology also obviously expresses our values right so i would say that i find something very interesting about the way we talk about ai right now is there's a huge bifurcation of opinion that seems very inconsistent on the one hand many many authors and artists are upping arms and we want to litigate and we're terrified about the idea that we will be replaced by ai which suggests that ai seems quite powerful and good and good in the sense of competent in doing some things that we would think of as creativity or whatever. But at the same time, we also say all the time that AI is terrible in the sense that the products of AI are bad. That is, you know, it can't even reproduce fingers properly. The stories it tells are garbage, so cliched, so devoid of feeling and soul. So which is there it? aren't cliches and tropes in okay. human written fiction. <laughs> sure, sure. Point taken. But but which is it? I mean, if yeah. if if AI really is that bad, why are we scared? And if we are scared, do we really think AI is going to be that bad always? Or is there some way to reconcile these feelings? I mean I, I feel like it's interesting that it reflects simultaneously contempt for AI, but also this terror of AI, which is not necessarily easily reconcilable for me. Um, and I, I personally think that, you know, this, the, the Frankenstein's monster myth being so potent and so um, all encompassing, we, it's hard for us to think of it even a different metaphor or a different mythological figure to talk about it. So what I've done, you know, something that I'm incredibly interested in is to think of a different mythological figure, a different symbol, a different way to contemplate AI. And so the symbol that I've settled on is the camera, which is why I'm so interested in the rise of camera as as in the history of of, of art. So, um, as I think I've mentioned in other contexts, um, there is actually a very interesting parallel to be drawn between the rise of the camera versus 
the rise of AI. You know, when the camera was first invented, there was quite a bit of discourse about what exactly is this thing? What what is this thing that we've invented? You know, they called it painting by light, or 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 you know, sun writing, whatever. The idea was that somehow the processes of chemistry and physics, not human craft, led to the production of these images. So it's a mechanical process. And so there was a sense in which, even though artists were not threatened directly by in their livelihoods, in the sense that early photographs were terrible compared to portraits you could paint. You know, they were black and white and they were, they required subjects to sit there for a long time and not move at all. Um, and there was no there was no attempt to elevate the subject, if you will. Like painters would elevate their subjects, but cameras don't lie, if you will. Um, <laughs> and so there was a lot of like disdain for photographs. So, but at the same time, there was also a sense of threat, not in the sense that painters were going to lose their jobs, but in the sense of this is devaluing human craft. It took people years of practice to be able to reproduce the shape of something accurately using pencil and then paint. But a camera could do so trivially. The the thing that we thought of as requiring human skill turned out to not require much human skill at all. And that was scary. So it's not the fact that art and artists were directly disvalued. That was the problem. It was It was that the thing that they thought required human craft turned out not to be so. That was threatening. And I would argue that that's what ended up changing things. Um, so if you follow the discourse of the camera throughout the 19th century and then into the 20th, it wasn't until photographers figure out how to turn the mechanical reproduction into something that was human craft based that elevated photography into an art form. So it took more than a century between the invention of photography and the first exhibition of photo photographs as fine art in Boston's Museum of Fine Art. Um, and during that century, art photographers changed their approach. So if you go back to the first Supreme Court case that granted photographers copyright over their products because before then you know it was believed that photographs could not be copyrighted i mean how can you copyright a mechanical reproduction of nature i mean what does that mean well you know the photographer who took a picture of oscar wilde said look you know i posed him a particular way i selected what was to be in the photograph i framed it in a certain way i select the shadows and the lights i elevated my subject right all the things that painters were supposed to do this photographer did and the Supreme Court said, you're right. After all of that, we recognize that the, the camera is nothing more than a tool. You have been elevated. You as an artist are the author of the photograph because you did all this human craft to make it. That's the moment photography became a fine art. Okay, And not only that, but the camera allowed artists to create cinema and TV two of the most important forms of art that we have right now. They they make more money than every other visual art combined. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just the way it is. So the camera, which was at first seen as something that devalued human craft, ended up being a thing that promoted human craft. It invented entirely new realms of art, allowing human creativity to flourish and to express themselves in ways that could not be done before. Without the camera, without the physics and the chemistry of it, cinema would not be possible. We would never have broken the Aristotelian unity. I mean, cinema is the first dramatic art to just destroy the Aristotelian unities. And we've all somehow learned to interpret these stories with no trouble. I mean, that still blows my mind that in less than 100 years, essentially, this entire new language of telling stories using cinema that, you know, jump cuts and cross cuts and fades and special no, like effects. The, the fact that, like... Marvel has taught more people about the hero's journey than however many <laughs> right? millions yeah. of stories right? across right. human history. Yeah. Even novelists now write in a cinematic style. Like literally, mm -hmm. even yeah. the way we yeah. tell stories is reshaped by cinema. It seems incredible. I don't even know how to think about it. Um, so anyway, so the point is, if you use the camera as the mythological symbol figure, then AI can be very hopeful. You don't have to fear AI. I, I have the feeling that 
right now, AI productions are not granted copyright because it's seen as merely a regurgitation of what humans have done. But at some point, would we not have figured out how to shape and author our own things using AI as a mere tool in the way that photographers eventually transcended mere reproduction and began to say, I am the author of this photograph. In what ways can those who use AI become the authors of the things that they're using AI to help generate? And also, even more interestingly, what are the ways in which we can now reimagine and reevaluate what is human craft? Visual artists learned that merely reproducing the form representationally was not sufficient to be art. There had to be something more. So visual arts moved in directions that are less representational. And when it comes to representational art, cameras became you know, the tools for new ways of storytelling. So it, how will AI change the way we think about narrative art? What are the things that we now think of as requiring a lot of human craft, which now we think Maybe don't. Maybe, maybe, maybe rhyming isn't such a big deal. Maybe, maybe good prosody isn't such an important skill. Maybe there are other ways that we can express our own human craft um, with when AI has taken over those functions. Maybe um, there are types of stories that we can tell that are not possible in the absence of AI, in the same way that there are kinds of stories that can be told with the camera that cannot be told without it. What are the other assumptions about narrative uh, coherence that we can break when AI has become a tool for us to use? And, you know, I, I sort of... I sort of think that this is much more promising and interesting and hopeful to me as a as a vision, because I'm very interested in thinking about how will AI, you know, not being Frankenstein's monster, but being the camera, how will that change the way we think and practice art? Uh, think about and practice art. That's anyway, that to me is is far more interesting. Yeah, because right now, like the conversations that I've been seeing or the conversations that I'm involved in, um, a lot of the perspectives that I've seen are either skeptical or negative. Um, from the writing side, especially, we have things like uh, training models um, who, like the tra- the training models are are using published works as learning as basically like models for learning how to better process language and how to spit out prose that is replicable in terms of quality and whatnot. And then there are so many authors who. And I'm not blaming them. I I, I don't particularly I think that I would want my work to be included in a training model either. That's where the copyright issue comes into it. Right. Right. And so I think like that that complicates things. Then I've had conversations with uh, artists who are vehemently opposed to the use of artificial intelligence in their artwork. You know, like I have like the Photoshop and, and Adobe suites where. Adobe is incorporating a lot of AI tools into its different software. So it's like Photoshop has AI tools, the the auto-generate tools and all this different kind of stuff. That complicates matters. Um, uh, I have another friend who's an uh, an animator, and he actually came at it from an angle that I think is very in line with what you were talking about in terms of like he's looking at AI tools. There's one where there's – you can basically give – this AI program a still image. And what what that that program will do is it will take that still image and imagine what that body looks like from every angle. Yes. Or what that image looks like like from every angle and it will animate it for yep. you. And so it's like you could have art that you created originally, but augment it through this program in order to mm-hmm. animate it. And mm-hmm. so like from an animator's perspective, that's actually a really big time-saving tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. For the animator, yeah. Where the animator's thinking at it is like, I can use this tool to um, A, save time, and B, create good quality animations that up my craft and allow me to explore avenues of creation that I'd never thought about before. Absolutely. And so it's like, on one hand, there are people who are just adamantly opposed to the, the use of AI, and there are a lot of people within the cover artist community, within the writing community, who are like, 
absolutely no AI kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, it's like I see my animator friend and people in different communities who are looking at it as like, how can I use this as a tool to better my craft? Not necessarily as a tool that will replace me, mm-hmm. but as something that will augment what I'm already capable of and help yes. me achieve something greater. This is this is that that's such a great point you're making. I mean, this is this is this is why I think the the camera um, uh, angle is so it's such a perfect analogy. Potent. Yeah, because I was gonna say are, it's a really yeah, interesting metaphor. Yeah, there are so many ways in which what you set maps to that, right? So so um, a lot of visual artists early on were very interested in photography, not because it somehow replaces them or whatever, but because they could use it to practice their art better. Um, Two of the most common uses by early visual artists of photographs were, one, to make reproductions of their originals that they could then monetize and sell, and two, uh, to use the camera as a way to produce studies from which they can then produce their final painting. So instead of producing sketches, they could use the camera to make these, uh, what what they would have to do in the past by sketching uh, in advance of of their painting the final scene um you know like you were saying artists today can use ai basically to do studies you know there are beyond the the examples you give you can easily imagine that um a filmmaker can use ai to try out prototype uh to use ai performances and, and 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 so on to generate prototypes of scripts so they can see what a film could look like before committing to a particular vision it will be amazing to be able to generate storyboards and prototype films quickly like that so you can iterate before before the production studio says like how much money do we have to invest in a scene and then end up scrapping it after all the shooting has been done and all like the set design and all that kind of stuff it's right you can kind of imagine that to to give yourself some so so if ai can be used to generate studies like that then you can imagine Imagine, you know, analogously, it would it would elevate the, the the kind of art that artists can make. Similarly, there can be ways in which authorized reproductions or extensions of authors' works can be monetized. I can imagine, for example, an artist who would say, "I have written a work. I can imagine a bunch of interesting potential expansions or or um, customizations I could do." with this work based on different readers. So I'm going to authorize AI to generate a bunch of things. So for example, you can have a conversation with a minor character um, generated by AI in accordance with the author's own particular guidelines for how the conversation would go. And then you could have a conversation with characters in books. I can imagine that being the sort of thing that authors would authorize and say, this can make me more money. This can extend my art in a way that allows more people to enjoy it in the same way that visual artists sold prints of their works. Um, now, the, the the objections to AI that we were talking about here are twofold, right? One is theft, right? Being Having your work being used into these training models without your permission or having people generate works imitating your work and competing with you, nobody wants that. that. That seems preposterously bad. So that's obviously a problem that we have to solve. The other problem is the whole devaluation of human craft, right? This is what we're talking about, the idea that because AI can generate out and spit out uh, tropish stuff so easily or generate graphic design logo so easily, does that devalue human craft? Is, is it possible that people would just not view what humans do as valuable anymore? That's a very interesting question. But I would say that based on the history of photography, it really will just force us to reinvent and rethink what is art? What are the things that we actually do that we value? Because, you know, like I mentioned, even though visual artists were not largely impacted by photography, contrary to popular belief, engravers, a kind of art, artisanal art, they were impacted very, very severely by um, uh, photography. Um, prior to photography, engravings and prints were the only ways to reproduce a piece of art for cheap purchase, cheap copies for purchase. Um, and engravers believed that they could reproduce a piece of art with soul, um, rather than the kind of mechanical reproduction that photography allowed. But the reality was people were happy to buy photographs of, of, um, of uh, works of art, and artists were happy to sell photographic reproductions. So engravers 
did lose out. Um, that's just the way it is. And and you, I, I'm not going to pretend that no one will be impacted by this. Some people will be impacted. Um, but the question is, do we want to think about this as a net gain or a net loss? I think most of us would agree that the camera is a net gain, ultimately, for art by allowing the invention of entirely new mediums that could not have existed otherwise. I'm super curious, and, and I think it will take a long time for us to, before we can figure this out, what are the new forms of art allowed by AI? Um, I have no idea what they would be because, you know, just like in early days of, of, of cinema, you know, it was not possible to even see how ultimately you could get to, um, the kind of, uh, you couldn't have imagined, for example, the Godfather, if all you could see of cinema was that scene of the train coming at the camera, that, that was, that was not possible in the same way that it's not possible for us to look at mid journey and ChatGPT now and imagine what are the forms of art that AI would actually allow. We just can't yeah. see it. Um, we're going to have to keep on experimenting and trying until we yeah. invent it. And I like think this has been the most hopeful I've felt about AI <laughs> yeah. that I, you know, like, this entire it time. It, it ties into what you were saying uh, last episode, where it's like you're putting together a talk about human creativity and technology. And in this case, it's like what is coming to my mind is after talking, talking with my animator friend, after talking with different people in different fields, it's about the capabilities of the creator, the creativity of the creator with the tool in hand. So we are the creators of these tools, but the implications of that tool depends on our creativity and our imaginations to think about the ways in which it can be used and obviously push aside and, and put a stop to things that are, you know, ultimately detrimental. Um, Cause it's like, you brought up like hackers and, and, and this, and it's like, I love the ways in which uh, genres like cyberpunk have used hackers and more like disruptive uh, members of society as the frame, as sort of like the 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 frameworks through which we can view uh, both the good and the bad about technology. And so it's like, even though there are many, there are often many bads about technologies. Usually, the people who are the most disruptive and the hackers and the people who are um, using those technologies in the ways that they weren't originally intended are the ones who then propose more interesting and more hopeful, ultimately, ironically, uses of those technologies. Absolutely. And those just, just like I said, you know, the point of art is to misunderstand the artist. You could say that the point of technology is to use it in ways the inventors never intended. Exactly. That is the whole point. Oh um, my gosh. Just, just to be even more hopeful about this, you know, some people might say, okay, you have all this vision of AI as a tool. Okay, but what, what if AI does not remain a tool? What if AI actually becomes intelligent? What if it's, you know, becomes its own separate intelligence? And I say, even better even better all right now all we're talking about is ai imitating humans but what if we could actually get to actual real intelligence whatever that means that is not merely a copy of humanity that would be amazing now you know, we would actually have another consciousness with the universe to to, to talk to to engage with to compare notes <laughs> to see if we understand you know be the most amazing thing about that is to see what those artificial intelligent bees created in terms of their hive what those yes! artificial intelligent beavers yeah. created in terms of their dams. oh my god exactly we humans have our intelligence we evolved this entire technosphere what would a separate intelligence do in terms of them growing their own technology and oh that's incredible like i would totally read ai written novels in that case like I would love to know what an aircraft carrier thinks about as it goes about its its life. <laughs> I would love to know how a satellite sees the universe. I mean, when that moment comes, I cannot wait to buy those novels. That would be incredible. That, that's why I love the works of Ian M. Banks and especially his culture series is because yeah. it imagines more esoteric applications of, of POV and, and, and sort of experience into the minds of artificial intelligences, into the minds of like legitimately like ship mines and, and, and things like that. And so I think yep. that's why science fiction and fantasy tech fi fuck sci-fi. That's why tech fi and fantasy and all these different genres are so good is that we can, 
Um, they're so good at, at allowing us to explore different points of view and different perspectives and empathize with those different perspectives. And so I think if we can fit technology into there and use it as a, as a mechanism, because fiction in and of itself is a technology. It's like using technology to tell a story about technology that then influences the reality of our interaction with technology. So 100%. So meta. Yeah. 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 So, so cool. Meta, yeah. MJ. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this, I mean, honestly, yeah. this whole conversation has been fascinating and very cool. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, just to close us out, do you have any final pieces of advice, final, final nuggets for authors that want yeah. to incorporate this kind of concept into their work? Yeah. But my, my, my biggest piece of advice is don't think of technology as, cold pieces of machinery that your characters interact with I, I, or they have to use it in some way. I mean, that's the standard vision of what sci-fi or tech-fi is about, and it's it's couldn't be further from the truth. Technology is only interesting when it has meaning, when it is human. So think about how does your technology, what story is it trying to tell? Who Whose story is it trying to tell, right? If you're trying to write a story about, say, a new invention, some sort of machine that you think will be amazing. Don't think of it as a machine. Think of it as the expression of the values and the stories of the inventor, the hacker, the salesperson, the market marketing executive, the rebel, the skeptic, the critic. All of them are trying to express their values and telling their stories in the way through the ways in which they interact with that piece of technology. Like if you're talking about the internet, describing the internet is not interesting, but telling us about how the Kim Kardashian single-handedly invented one of the most popular uses for the internet, selfies. Now that's interesting. What are the values being expressed by a society that loves selfies? Freaking amazing. Anyway, that's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, um, Robert Oppenheimer in the creation of the nuclear bomb. It's like, on one hand, you have so many different people with so many different perspectives on what this thing can do, you know? And from Oppenheimer's perspective, it's like, he quotes the Bhagavad Gita and he's like, now I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds. And on the other hand, there are so many different applications of of nuclear fission that we can that we can use, and it's not just a weapon of war. And mm-hmm. this is something that I love about your series, Ken, which I mentioned in the last episode, is the ways in which technology is used on so many different levels for both good and bad, and also mundane ways. Yeah, uh, like technology, selfies. <laughs> like selfies. It is it is interspersed throughout our lives, throughout our societies, and it is up to us to decide how we want to interact with it and how we want to create in ways that are more optimistic and hopeful. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was awesome. Doing this, uh, doing this masterclass with us and, and kicking off the year with us is 2024. Not right Yay. now when we're recording, but <laughs> right. when these episodes go live. <laughs> we're speaking, speaking of fucking time and all that yeah. craziness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this mini masterclass and our two-parter with Ken Liu. Thank you so much for decoding this complex topic with us. Uh, yeah, it, it meant a lot to to hang out with you and to talk about something so fascinating. This was really fascinating. Fun. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, so, thank Ken, you. where can folks find you online? Um, you can see me. Uh, probably the best place is my website, which is kenliu.name. Uh, and you can also sign up for my newsletter there. Um, you can get to there from a link on my website or go to it directly, which is kenliu.substack.com. Awesome. And uh, you can also follow SFF Addicts on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, Blue Sky, all that at SFF Addicts Pod. You can follow me at Adrian M. Gibson. MJ, what about you? Yep, you can find me across all the major socials at MJ Kuhn Books, all one word, or check out my website, newsletter, all that good stuff at just mjkuhn.com. Free newsletter, paid books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Promote that shit and go support Ken. Go pick up The Grace of Kings. Go pick up The Hell yeah. Marjorie, uh, The Hidden Girl, and other stories. Fantastic work. Um, thank you all for listening. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.